his name was Mickey Dorsey and Mickey Dorsey changed my life that day. And what I realized was Mickey, he was this unsung hero who never once asked for recognition and was looking at a young woman in, in the VA waiting room, seeing a veteran in need, struggling, and that he could reach out a hand to help me up, and he did. And I wanted to pass that along as freely as he gave it. Welcome to the Resiliency Podcast. Join us for discussions about the timeless principles of human healing, mental wellness, and modern science. Stacy Pearsall got her start as an Air Force photographer at the age of 17. During three combat tours, she earned a Bronze Star Medal, an Air Force Commendation with Valor for combat actions in Iraq. And with her service dog Charlie by her side, she continues to work as an independent photographer, an author, educator, military consultant, and public speaker. She's also the founder of the Veterans Portrait Project, where since 2008, she has completed over 8,500 veteran portraits across the U.S. Her television series, After Action, will premiere on PBS on Veterans Day 2022. Thank you so much for being here today, Stacy. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Why don't we take a minute and just, you know, introduce who you are and, you know, a little bit about the projects you've been working on. Well, I'm Stacy Pearsall, an Air Force veteran. I served as a, a combat photographer um, during my military service and uh, was eventually medically retired from injuries I sustained um, while downrange and transitioned into doing photography outside of the military. Even despite the doctors telling me I, I likely didn't have uh, any sort of future in, in that due to my injuries. And um, it was quite a journey getting through that process. Um, it was a physically challenging time and an exponentially more challenging emotional um, tribulation for me. And I would say that through, my, through the photography that I did, with the Veterans Portrait Project, um, it aided my recovery and and helped me have a new sense of self. And when you were when you were serving in the military, you did three combat tours and even earned a Bronze Star uh, commendation. So, what was that like while you were you know you said you were injured in the military? How did that affect you being able to you know be able to be a combat photographer? Well, my injuries were of such a nature that I couldn't wear body armor or Kevlar in, anymore. It was um, a cervical spine trauma, and that basically meant that if you can't wear body armor, you really can't go down range. And if you can't go down range, you're not much of a combat photographer. And if you're not a combat photographer, you can't be in the combat camera unit. So uh, it was just sort of devolving from there. And it all came down to the neurologist saying I wasn't going to spontaneously get better. And my future as a combat photographer or a photographer, period, or in the military, for that matter, was very limited. And I had two choices. I could take the medical retirement or take a reclassification into something administrative. And when it came to deploy again, came time to deploy again, I would have to be faced with the same decision. So at the time, I identified solely as someone living their life in the fast lane and couldn't imagine myself doing anything other than what I was doing. So I, I took the medical retirement and tried my darndest. And it was a temporary medical retirement. So I tried my darndest to rehabilitate enough. And just, again, it, I waited another 18 months for another neurosurgeon from the military to say, yeah, that's, that's not enough. It's just not enough. So that ultimately uh, ended my career. 
so when you were obviously this was something you enjoyed doing um, with photography and so when you were you know having to you know get out of the military what what was that like as you were you know I think it sounds like your career path changed really suddenly and not not by your choice so what Mm -hmm. was that like as you were you know getting out of the military dealing with trauma dealing with everything else and then you know losing something that you really love doing well I I grew up in a military family, it was a natural transition that I would join the service. And I did at 17. If you imagine that you're joining the service at the most influential time of who you are as an individual, and you're still gaining your identity. And at that age, that's who I became and who I was. Fast forward to you know, multiple deployments and traveling around the world and being at the top of my game. I was military photographer of the year twice, DOD across the DOD, and I was riding high. I had plans of making E9 and being a leader and all of those plans were crushed, you know, um, at the age of 27 when I was injured for the second time in, in combat, which was ultimately the catalyst uh, to the final injury of my career. So um, how was that transitioning out? Well, I think overly complicated because I wasn't ready for that transition. And, and hey, even people who do 20 years in the service who think they're ready, who've had time to be ready, aren't ready for that transition. It's, a, it's like jumping into the deep end and not having one swimming lesson. Because, you know, the military, they teach you step-by-step step how to become who you are in the military. They do not teach you step-by-step step how, to, how to undo that thinking and un unbe they had to undo it and i think it was overly complicated because of the pain medications i was on the um sort of mental health traumas that i was going through at the time was sort of clouded by depression it was clouded by post-traumatic stress and just a, a real sense of abandonment so i couldn't even see getting the purpose of getting up the next morning, let alone the purpose of living a life totally without purpose. And that took a long time to, to rediscover. And you did a lot of work to rediscover that. I know we've talked about it before is the amount of effort that you put into healing. And, um, it sounded like it was such a journey for you. And what did that look like? Because I know that it it wasn't easy. Um, and it, it took a continuous work on your part, Um, over that time and then ultimately leading to, you know, starting the Veterans Portrait Project and how much that's helped you. But um, what did it kind of look like in the beginning as you're facing this, you know, scenario that you didn't choose and a life that you didn't even see coming really? Right. I think I had a lot of simultaneous uh, balls in the air that I was juggling and it took a lot of just taking, uh, taking one thing out of the equation at a time. First of all, I I had a lot of friends who unfortunately passed away on my last deployment. So I was grappling with grief, like uh, unprocessed grief. Um, I was also dealing with the, you know, a lot of people who deal with combat traumas to deal with that should have, would have, could have, I could have done things differently. I should have done X, Y, Z differently. And so I was reliving those things, not only in my waking um, life, but in my, in my sleep too. So I was having suffering from insomnia and night terrors. I had to deal with what was my future going to be 
you know, the, the VA was like, you're not going to be able to lift cameras anymore or stand for long periods of time. And you're going to have to change how you go about life. And I'm a horse person. So, you know, they were like, horses are off the table and running's off the table. And I was hoping to do a marathon once in my life. And so I, all, all I could hear were these boxes of checking the things that I could no longer do. And then the scales kept tipping and tipping and tipping in a very negative direction. And I was on this like circling drain, feeling, feeling the, the pull. And at the same time, I was, I left the military community, the one I loved so much. And then, and then like in very bitter terms as well, because I felt, completely abandoned by that institution that I had grown up in. And then I transitioned into a brand new community of veterans who treated me like a complete outsider. I was young. I was, I was 28 when I became an official officially became a veteran and started getting my care at the VA hospital. So, you know, most veterans were two and three times my age (laughs) and I was a woman. So they would often, often look at me and say, are you bringing your husband to his doctor's appointment? How supportive you're bringing your dad to his doctor's appointment. It was never me as the veteran. So I never, I didn't belong in the the military community. I didn't belong in the veteran community. I didn't have any sense of identity anymore, period. So one day I was feeling super bitter and frustrated. I was at the VA waiting for my appointment. It was like two hours past my appointment time. And an older veteran was staring at me. And I just felt my face burning. I don't know if it was from like, not just embarrassment or anger, frustration, probably all of the above. And I was cursing him in my, in my mind. And I was about to curse him out loud when I was like, no, don't do that. Don't. So I just turned to him and I asked him if there was something I can help him with. And his face lit up. It was so unexpected. It kind of took me aback. And he surprised me by asking about me as a veteran and me as my military story. And I found out through having this wonderful conversation with a perfect stranger that he was a World War II veteran, that he had survived D-Day, that he liberated a concentration camp. And he was absolutely incredible. He had volunteered like 60 hours a week at the VA hospital, even though he was well into his 90s at that point. Wow. You know, I think in that moment, we have moments in our lives that change our trajectories. And this was one of those sort of pivotal moments where I realized that I had let all of my anger and frustration completely, completely cloud my judgment. And what I had thought or presumed everybody um, was, you know, being prejudiced against me, I was projecting my own prejudices and I had developed my own, um, you know, awful thoughts about other people that wasn't true because of, because of the negativity I was bringing to the situation. So his name was Mickey Dorsey and Mickey Dorsey changed my life that day. And what I realized was Nikki, Mickey, excuse me, Mickey was this unsung hero who never once asked for recognition and um, was looking at a young woman in, in the VA waiting room, seeing a veteran in need struggling and that he could reach out a hand to help me up. And he did. And I wanted to pass that along as freely as he gave it. 
the only tool I had to do that, uh, though, was to um, bring my camera to the VA. And I, so I worked with the public affairs office there and I set up a little studio in the waiting rooms. And if a veteran had time to kill and they wanted to sit down in my seat, then I would take pictures. And suddenly I was doing the things the doctors told me I wasn't going to do, lift a camera, stand for prolonged periods of time and, and have something of hope for the future. And with every veteran story, they validated my own experience. Granted, um, we may not, may not share the same gender or even the same generation or even the same branch of service. But I think what made it healing for me was to know that a Vietnam veteran could go through similar experience as I did and have perseverance and success in, in a life carrying those burdens with him, but not letting them hold him back. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I mean, just jumping back for a second there of the, you know, the beginning of your story when you're meeting Mickey is our ability to kind of create these scenarios in our heads of how we think things are. And then how, you know, not only while we may are being limited by other people, we're also kind of accepting those limitations and putting them on ourselves and other people. And um, I think it's such a testament to community and the fact that, you know, somebody speaking up, just saying hello and asking your story. Um, so often it's so like, well, what am I going to say? Like, it doesn't matter what you're going to say. You just be there and say hi and listen. And I think it's such an, a beautiful example of how life changing just listening to someone's story can be. Right. And it, it just sounds like this. I mean, obviously, it's such a pivotal moment in your life for, for being able to, you know, turn that journey into a healing story. Um, it's I'm I'm really thankful you're sharing that. It's just such an important thing to talk about. Yes. Thank you. And I think that you said it. One thing that's so profound and, and seems so simple is to just say hello and to listen. Sometimes that's all people need. Right. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. That is. So what was that like as you're, you know, you're meeting these people and obviously, you know, it's, it's helping you, it sounds like, and it's helping them as well. But did you, did you kind of have any ideas then of what it could become and, uh, you know, what a big project it could be, or were you just kind of focusing in the moment? I really was thinking quite small initially that I would just do this little project in my own little VA hospital and yeah, I would be content, but that was never in my DNA. I, I always was looking for a goal. And if I set a goal for myself, then I would continue to want to get up in the morning and put one foot in front of the other. And I needed that in that moment of my life. So I kind of set this crazy impossible goal that I would photograph veterans in every state so that's, you know, 50 states would take a lifetime, right? And um, if I were doing it just through my own fundraising and, you know, piecemealing it here and there, then that certainly would take a long time. I never had anticipated that the project would grow in such popularity that people would be doing the fundraising for me and calling me and said, hey, we had the infrastructure here, just come, we'll, we'll cover you. And I'm like, okay. So then I went to Florida and North Carolina and Georgia and, um, you know, places where I could go within driving distance. And, and then I had to, I, I participated in a joint exhibition outside of New York City. And I had submitted a, a couple of photographs of some of the veterans from the project 
that I had done in the Southeast. And somebody asked about them and I was like, well, you know, I'm really known for my military photography, but it's not who I am anymore. My, my combat photography was this, uh, this preface or, you know, it was what, what prepared me for what my life's work was going to be. I just had no idea that that, that that was a segue or it was my launching in a, in a way. So my combat photography and my combat experiences and all that I had learned and all that I had overcome through those experiences were really just allowing me the emotional capacity, the, um, the emotional depth and understanding and to have empathy with the people that I was going to be photographing and to have better understanding and relatability. And it was funny because as I was describing it to this individual, they were standing there and I couldn't tell if they were completely glossing over or, or if it was just like in my head, I was finally able to articulate verbally what was, what was happening to me behind the camera and why I was so darn motivated to do it. So this person said, Hey, I'm going to connect you with my friend at USAA. And I was like, okay, for whatever, whatever that means. And then, you know, a few weeks passed and I don't think anything of it. And um, this gentleman by the name of Keener Gill from USAA reached out to me and he said, hey, I, I'm in Tampa. I'd like to hear more about, about your work. Can you come down? And I was like, what? Okay. So on a whim, I flew down to Tampa and I told him my story uh, about my time as a combat photographer, about, you know, overcoming physical injuries, getting, um, you know, working through mental health um, and that it was an ongoing thing. And the project was an extension of that. And, um, that I had set that crazy goal. And at the end I was like, well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate being able to share other veteran stories. And I hope that we as a community can understand that each and everybody has a journey and, and a story to tell. Well, Keener sat back and there was a number of other USA individuals there. And he said, well, I, I don't think we can get you to all 50 States, but we can get you to at least 13. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, we want to help you. And I was so gobsmacked, um, I, I had no words. And that's really when the Veterans Portrait Project became this little passion project and became a full-time, a full-time endeavor. And, I, I, and so that was in 2013, and I completed all 50 states, Veterans Day 2019. Wow. That's, yeah. That's amazing. That's such, I mean, it is. And during this, you know, before when you, before you kind of saw what this could be, you were going through a ton of effort on your own, dealing with trauma, post-traumatic stress, your injury, and you tried all kinds of things, um, kind of going through that healing process. Do you, would you be okay talking about that for a little bit? Yes. And I would say that from my first combat deployment, I, uh, under, I went through a couple of really bad things and I got uh, blown up by an improvised explosive device. And so I was kind of struggling while I was still in the service. And uh, I, at the time, you know, and, and it was a different climate. And I believe anybody who was listening to this, who was in during those early days, you know, just after 9-11, well, I would say anything, anything sort of pre 2015, maybe it was very taboo to talk about mental health and it could be very detrimental to even say you had, you had sort of um, struggles with anything to do with mental health. So 
I was having nightmares then and I was having sort of anxiety. I just didn't know what it was. And I began to isolate myself from my friends. I didn't go to a lot of parties or, and things like that. Like I used to be very social prior to that. And then when I came home, um, it really started to manifest over time. Now I had went to the mental health clinic on base. I was finally so strung out and tired that I went to the mental health on base and I walked into the clinic and there were couples hanging out, like going to couples therapy. And I walk up to the the counter to get help. And the gal's like open mouth chewing her gum. She's totally checked out. And she's like, yeah. And I said, I'm having problems sleeping. And she's like, well, have you talked to your primary care provider? And I was like, why would I do that? It's a mental health thing. And, and she's like, so they can give you sleeping pills. And I just kind of rocked back on my heels a bit. And I was like, wait a minute. So you want to throw drugs at me and not even address the, the core of the issue. And I knew even then what I was feeling had nothing to do with a sleep, a sleep deprivation or something wrong with my sleep schedule. I knew that it was, that it was things that I had seen and been through and to be so dismissive, so dismissed in that moment, I was frustrated. And I was like, to me, that feels like you're saying, go get some sleeping pills, take a whole bunch of them and see if you wake up tomorrow. If you don't, eh, oh, well, like I felt that was the attitude. So I just right. kind of nodded at her. I'm like, all right, well, thanks. And I turned around and I walked out and this gal, one of the counselors overheard this exchange and she ran after me. She said, Hey, come on back in. I'm, I'm ready to talk to you. If you, I'm here, she shouldn't have done that, whatever. I was like, that's fine. It took a lot for me to even come here today. And I was like in tears at that point. I'm like, you have no idea. I'm, I, I could be taken out of uh, my unit. I could be um, grounded from being an aerial combat photojournalist. Like you, you have no idea. And she's like, I'm so sorry. At least if you're not going to get help with me, at least go see the chaplain. I said, fine. So she made me an appointment with the chaplain, which was going to be uh, on a Wednesday at 10 a.m. So I arrived like any good military person at 945 and it was 945. Door was locked. Lights were out. And I said, "Okay, well, maybe he's at another event. 950. Still no chaplain. 955. Nope. 10 a.m. No. 1015. No. 1030. No chaplain. So I called the chaplain's office. I left a message and I said, um, don't bother. And I called the counselor and I said, he never showed that that's the the status of mental health in the military. So fast forward a couple more weeks and I haven't slept a whole lot and I'm feeling even more strung out. I got black bags under my eyes and I have to go to Washington DC for a training clinic. And there are some Vietnam era combat photographers who are there who are, who are mentoring everybody. And one of them pulled me aside and I'd known him for a couple of years. And he said, Stacy. Uh, I can see it on your face that some things are hitting you really hard. I think you need help. And I said, I've tried to get help. I have, I've tried, but nobody wants to help me. And I was like sitting in the hallway bawling at my wits end. And he's like, I'm going to hook you up with a vet center. And I said, sweet. So his, his vet center in New York city called my vet center down in South Carolina. I was the first active duty member that they knew of to ever treat somebody for post-traumatic stress while still on active duty and not on military record. Wow. Yeah. And I had some really great experience with um, one-on-one talk therapy with a, 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 a then vet center counselor by the name of Pat Chase. And she was amazing. And um, 
I really attribute her providing me a lot of skills to be able to continue to work in that field because that was my first combat deployment. I had a few after that, as you know. Right. So when I when I went through all of those other experiences, and like I said, my 2007 um, com- combat deployment was pretty rough. I lost a lot of friends. One of my my battle buddy and, vi- and video partner, um, Katie, had been shot. She survived, but um, it was a very traumatic experience. And when I came home um, and through my own injuries, you know, I got hit by another improvised explosive device. I got injured during an ambush. It was a mess. So coming home from that, I was thinking, okay, I was processing, processing everything. I was, I was actually talking to Pat Chase remotely through phone calls and just through emails. And she was really, really supportive during that time. So I felt like, I felt like I was doing okay. What I didn't know was everything was sort of eroding from the inside out. And I had, I had convinced myself that I had created this really wonderful armor. And the truth was that I had no armor left. <laughs> it was, I was just a shell of a being. So it really, really all kind of came to a head and um, it was really dark, a really dark place. I thought about suicide and it was, it was when I was actually, coming up with a plan that I knew I had to get back to the drawing board and get in, into in person to see some people. And, um, initially the VA wanted to put me in a group. So they put me in group counseling with other women veterans, which is fine. Um, they were saying that my gender would throw off the vibe of the, the combat veteran combat, uh, trauma group. The vibe. Yeah. So they put me in with other women because, you know, women and women make sense. Um, And, and bless their hearts, their, their traumas were a lot different from mine. And it was hard for me to relate. And the counselor who was running the group said that I was disruptive because I, they, she said I was disruptive because I was not open to getting help or listening to their stories. And I'm like, this is not, like experience. I cannot relate to these experiences in any way. I'm sorry. Right. And so I gave up then. Then it was another couple months, maybe even a few months. I went back and I tried rapid eye movement where they do the finger thing. They're like, follow my finger. And I tried that and I had no success with that. I was like, this feels like hogwash. And um, no. So I gave up on that. And it was like another year before I tried another therapy, which was prolonged exposure therapy. How did that um, <laughs> Do you have much experience with that? I, I, yeah, I do know what it is. And I, I know so, um, for some people it works. Um, and for some people it's a catastrophic failure. It was catastrophic for me. I'll say that. Yeah. But you know, the thing is, I never give up on a fight. And I was, and I thought that if I went through one appointment or two appointments and I gave up, then I wasn't giving it the old college try. Like I had to try. And let me tell you, I tried for six months and I actually felt more suicidal coming out of that than I did going in. And it was, it was at that time that I met Mickey. So, yeah. And that's what changed everything. I'm so happy you did, you did meet him. I think that, um, 
for people listening, I guess, that don't feel so prolonged exposure therapy is where um, a person is essentially re-exposed to their trauma uh, repeatedly. And the idea is behind it that eventually you would become desensitized to it. Um, but for some people, a, a lot of people, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, and especially specific types of trauma. So I am, yeah. So what was that like as you, obviously you're going into the VA now, um, and it sounds like, um, you've tried everything that they've thrown at you, but it's just not working. And so with meeting Mickey, what did that feel like? I mean, I bet that it was so nice to have somebody just feel like they truly listened to you. And that's all I really needed. I needed at that time, somebody to, to hear me. And I think what I needed even more was for somebody else to validate what I was feeling. And that was done through listening to other veterans stories. Because like I said, it wasn't enough for me to just say, okay, I know what I'm feeling and I know why I'm feeling it. But I felt like I was the only one going through that. Like I felt like, you know, if I voiced that I had, sorrow over the loss of my friends or that I grieved, you know, and I had these emotions that nobody else was articulating, then maybe it was because I was a woman and maybe I am the weaker sex. Maybe I never really belonged in combat. Maybe I did th- things wrong. Maybe I was, wasn't cut out for it like I thought I was. But the truth was that even the most hardened infantrymen or special forces folks that I've talked to have those emotions. They just Everybody lives with them differently, but that's the key thing. And I I want to reiterate is that they live with them in their own way. And that's not something that you can heal or get over. And I think that that is what was, I think what was preached to me from so many therapists was like, well, you need to do six appointments for this to be successful. I'm like, how do you even put a number on something that's unquantifiable? You can't. You can't say I'm going to spontaneously get through these emotions because you're not me and you haven't lived my experience. And I'm not, and I'm not Joe and I'm not Jane and I'm not Jack or I'm not Jill. And we're all going, we could go all go through the same experience and we will all take our own time to get through it. And it took me hearing other veterans and listening to the iterations of their lives and their experiences to better understand my own. Absolutely. I think um, it's so important for storytelling um, and being able to have your, like you said, your experiences validated because no two people are the same. And then I think we so much are in a culture now where they're like, well, we're going to heal this, um, meaning like it's just going to go away rather than, you know, talking about, you know, trauma, um, especially is often never goes away. What, What gets bigger is your capacity right? Your capacity to grow around it, your capacity to grow beyond it. Um, But I don't, in my experience, it's not something that leaves you. It's something that becomes a part of you and you heal around it, not through it. Mm -hmm. Did did you, what was your experience like going through that? And um, I, 
I think you did so much in the beginning of kind of the medical model of trauma. And so they give you these mentalities where it's like, you have to do this. Like you said, like six, you know, six visits and it's done. Like who decided that, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, oh, here's your magical you have to do. It's like six Hail Marys and four Hall Fathers and you are healed. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, yes. it just seems so odd to me that they made this one size fits all model um, that they can just smack everybody on the forehead with and like you're cured. You know, mm -hmm. like it's, um, you know, it's like you, like you've got an infection and now we're just going to give you an antibiotic and you're cured in five rounds of it, you know, and that's mm -hmm. not, that's not accurate. Right. Well, I think the only person that can, can absolve you of the sins that you feel is you. And the only absolution can come from your own grace and you have to forgive yourself. And at, some people just may never get to that. And I'm, I'm not saying I have, there, there are still things that I'm carrying with me um, that I haven't been able to forgive myself for, but I will in time, I hope, you know, it's just taking one day at a time and, and not, not beating myself up for the things that I, uh, that, that I haven't forgiven myself for yet. Um, but allowing myself the time and space to heal that on, on my own terms and, and at my own, at my own pace. And, um, I think a lot of my success has come from, from turning the mute button on the unnecessary noise of people that say, you know, you should be over this by now. It's been 10 years. You should be, you know, the <laughs> time is all you need to heal. And I'm like, well, not necessarily, but, um, I think for me, I, I know who I am a lot better than I now than I did 10 years ago. And I hopefully will know myself even better 10 years from now. So that's the point. That's exactly. I think that's a, such a wise words for people to understand that it's, um, there is no book, you know, that is, every, that fits everyone for trauma and how, what it looks like. And the journey that you're going through is a journey that you're going through. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really the only thing that needs to be focused on. And that's what I love about your, your project. And I, we're going to link this and everyone, so everybody can check it out. But I think, you know, through the veterans portrait project and what you did with that and really showing how no two journeys look the same, no two people had, you know, two people can be in the exact same place and not have the same experience. And so really showing the human, like the humanization for me of what it's like to experience trauma. And um, it's just, it's, I'm sure for you even more so of meeting these people and hearing their stories. And um, maybe you could share a little bit of that of like what that was like for you as this project grew um, into what it is, you know, today. And um, maybe even their experiences of, you know, things that they had said. And I know that you said the gratitude that they had showed for being able to have somebody to just really listen to their, you know, their life and experience. I think what I had never anticipated when I started the project, um, you know, it was obviously a thank you card to my fellow veterans. Um, it was a way to give back to the community, to capture stories of people who, uh, whose stories would otherwise go untold. But what I had not anticipated over time was the healing that it would give me. And, and most certainly had never predicted the healing that it would provide those whose portraits I was taking. I think that there are several examples, um, one of which sticks out in my mind the most um, was early on in, in the project. I was working at a, 
a homeless transition, a veterans homeless transition program where um, homeless veterans had the opportunity to go through occupational training. They were given housing and they were going through maybe substance abuse counseling and, and other sort of talk therapy. I set up my studio at their little community and was photographing the veterans and capturing their stories. And one veteran was sort of, he was pacing around sort of on the outskirts of, of what was happening. And most of the veterans were pretty chatty and, and really friendly, but this guy um, sort of averted his eyes. He wasn't really comfortable with eye contact and he wasn't saying anything to anybody. And he had his hands in his pockets. It's just the, the body language was really um, sheltered and closed off. Finally, I was getting ready to, to take the studio down. And he was still kind of pacing around and, and then we kind of locked eyes and I didn't really have to say anything to him. I just kind of locked eyes with him and I gestured my head toward the studio like, hey, come on. So he kind of walked over and um, he stood there and and I didn't have to really say anything. I just kind of guided him through the experience with um, with a kind touch and um, just friendly gestures and, and good vibes and um, you know, finally at the end, I gave him a hug and he was crying and he said, thank you. And I didn't really think anything of it uh, other than I was both moved by the experience and, um, everyone else around me was just silent. Everybody had been talking kind of talking under the, you know, just watching and chatting amongst themselves. But when, when he said, thank you, the whole, the whole area got quiet and then he walked away. He went right back to where, wherever he was um, being housed. And the counselor who was overseeing the experience walked up and he said, those are the first words I've ever heard him speak wow. since being in the program. Wow. Uh, so that was really profound for me. Um, Absolutely. And, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, that's a huge impact on someone. That's a, that's really amazing to hear. I'm sure that, like you said, I'm sure that even felt... Um, I'm sure that was pretty phenomenal being there. Yeah. Um, one other experience that I can share with you that was really moving was I was at a VFW convention in Baltimore. And uh, listen, in, when it comes to the Veterans Portrait Project at events like that, I can photograph anywhere from 80 to 100 veterans in a day. Um, but each and every veteran I remember and their stories I remember. But this guy particularly, he and his wife showed up and I sat him in my seat and I, and I put his wife into a chair behind me, sort of off behind my right shoulder. And so he and I were talking and um, I, I usually put a veteran in the chair and then I'll like, like um, sit them down on my knees um, at the, at their feet and just have a chat with them for a little bit and get to know them. It might be two minutes. It might be 10 minutes. Who knows? Well, he and I were so engrossed because he was telling me about um, his experience he said, you know, I had to do a lot of photography too. And I said, Hey, what was your job? And he said, well, I was in Vietnam and my job was to ID uh, the individuals who were killed in action. So I had to inventory their um, personal effects. I had to photograph their body and their items and et cetera. And I was like, wow, that's rough. That's pretty gruesome. You know? So we start, started talking about the sort of unsavory parts of our job as, as photographers in combat and, um, and I had no idea, but over my shoulder, I started hearing this sort of like gasping cry, you know, the kind of, the kind of cry that feels ugly. Right. Um, and I, he and I were both like kind of 
pulled out of our, our conversation by that um, sort of violent crying. And it was his wife. Um, and I was like, well, I better, I better hurry up and get your picture. So we, I ended up taking his picture. And then afterwards, his wife came up and just embraced me really hard. And she wouldn't let go. And she was sobbing. She was like, I have been married to this man for decades. And every night he fights in his dream, in his dreams. And I've always asked him what, what's wrong. And I, I never knew what he did in Vietnam. All I knew was he was there. And this is the first time I've ever heard him speak about it. Wow. That's it. Wow. Yeah. I'm sure that was pretty heavy hearing something like that for him to trust you and to be able to, you know, feel like he was in a space where he could, you know, talk about his experience and, you know, sharing similar ones of yours. I think that that is reflective of sometimes you just need the right person to be able to hear your story in a understanding way. And I, and I think maybe, and I, this is just me saying, listen, I've, I photographed over 8,500 veterans, all of whom had different stories to tell. And I, I feel like just in having heard all of these stories, that the one consistent thing is that often I would hear, I, I don't want to re-injure anybody else with stories that have injured me. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to project this pain onto my loved ones. I'll carry this burden by myself. But I don't think that we as veterans often consider that other veterans might also be a, a good place to, to shed those burdens or share those burdens with one another. And sometimes just, just being able to verbalize it and, and release that can, can be um, an exhale of itself in a way. I think that's a perfect way to describe it because I think that uh, they hold that in, you know, it's, it's held in for so long. And like you said, they often people that do experience trauma, it's a very common thing that's said is, well, I don't want to, you know, burden anyone else by talking about something that's, you know, I'm obviously struggling with, but then what ends up happening is there, you know, that five pounds isn't that heavy if you're carrying it in your hand, but it is if you carry it in your hand for 30 years, mm -hmm. like it's going to drag your whole body down. And so, um, it is so vital and so important to find it. You know, it's not like you have to go write a book or, you know, you don't have to jump on and tell the whole world, but I think it's so vital for everybody, um, it's veterans and people who have experienced trauma to have at least someone that they can share with, um, someone mm -hmm. that they can have that confidence with, um, because it's, it's, you said, you know, it's like an exhale, like it's really important to be able to breathe in our day-to-day yeah. -day lives. And it's, I think it's such a, a tragedy when, um, people are holding their breath for their whole lives like that. And obviously by the way, his wife reacted, um, th that's a huge deal. You know, he's obviously not been talking to anyone about it. So uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, that's really, really phenomenal. Well, I think there are uh, also instances where the roles are kind of reversed, where maybe the loved one doesn't want to dig a little too deeply. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sometimes I, I've, I've also found that those who are nearest a veteran who may need uh, a veteran who's struggling, um, those who are nearest them may feel reluctant to open Pandora's box mm -hmm. because they, they may be afraid for their own reasons or maybe are afraid to 
upset their 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 veteran loved one um you know not wanting to dig up the past or dredge up old feelings you know what i mean and mm-hmm. and that's fair too I, it's it's never an easy uh path to navigate but it's important to that we as a community it's important that we as a community make ourselves more available to having those tougher conversations absolutely Absolutely. I think it's our, our job as a community, really, to make ourselves available for that. Um, it's our, our volunteer program that we have is a big reason, a big, big reason why that program was created in the first place was um, to help educate the public on that. Because like you said, I think a lot of times they don't know or they don't, you know, have maybe the knowledge or the understanding that it, like it's okay to, you know, check in and ask how they're doing and be able to say, Hey, you know, I'm here if you, if you want to talk about something. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's so important. And so as is with this project, you know, grew, like you said, 8,500 veterans went from just your local, you know, VA to this huge project. And now you actually have, um, a series, a television series that's going to be airing on veterans day of this year, right? 2022. Yes. It's called after action. That's going to be on PBS. Why don't we talk about that too? Because I think this is obviously you have this amazing project that's already been happening, but I'm so excited for this and for people to be able to see it because I think it will just create an even bigger audience to be able to talk to people about these, you know, really important issues. Yes. It would seem like a natural progression after I completed the veterans portrait project in 2019, I had already begun expounding upon that. Listen, the Veterans Portrait Project will never end. As long as there's a breath in my body and there are veterans on this uh, on this planet, then I will probably continue to, nice. to photograph them and tell their stories. But I wanted to take it a step further. I wanted to, to find a way to bring the community, the communities together. And there's always the civilian community, the non-military veteran types, and then the veteran community. And there, I, I feel like there's a gap between those two. And I wanted to find a bridge between them, a way to bring this community more close together. And I think a lot of that comes through demystifying the military experience for those who haven't experienced it. And I wanted to find a, to create a program that would bring veterans together to talk candidly with one another. And it's going to be a very fly on the wall experience. It's myself and I'm inviting three veterans for a round table discussion for each episode, three different veterans. And we're going to talk about a variety of different topics. And these topics will range from indoctrination and what it's like to become military and what happens in that, um, that metamorphosis and what, what literally makes our brains tick and the things that ca- that carry with us, no matter whether we hang up our spurs or not. Um, we're going to talk about some occupational challenges. We'll talk about, um, well, we're going to talk about post-traumatic stress. And we're going to talk about the importance of therapy animals and, and things like service dogs. I have a service dog myself. His name's uh, Charlie. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but anyway, the idea is... We talk as veterans so much more openly and conversations are so much more fulsome with one another. And then you bring a civilian into the room and things kind of clam up. So the whole point is to get everybody talking and we're going to 
allow the basically the world to see what our what our inner monologues are like in a way and and hope that our loved ones our friends our greater community will have a better understanding of who we are underneath the facade because let's face it the veteran community is um it's kind of put on the pedestal in a way in that you know we're all heroes and um invincible and um all of those other sort of patriotic you know patriotic things that we see and and we the movies that are made about us make us seem superhuman Mm -hmm. and the truth is we're human beings who were put into uniform put through um sometimes inhumane experiences um extraordinary experiences we are bonded through trauma Mm -hmm. and and then asked to reintegrate with society so we want to bring the veteran community back into society in a fun, thoughtful way in hopes that the the dialogue will continue afterwards. And because it's PBS, we really want the community to be involved in these sort of actionable items afterwards. So if we have mental health therapists in certain areas who maybe specialize in military sexual trauma, that we can talk about that within their communities and, and ways that veterans can seek help or for veterans who are seek, you know, suffering from homelessness or maybe having problems getting a job and, and talking uh, to business owners about why they should hire veterans and what makes us so incredibly great. Um, and maybe some of the challenges that we face, it's not going to be, all apple pie and baseball. We're going to talk some really, really tough truths about the veteran experience. I can't wait to see it. I, I, I think those are all so important things like you're saying about, you know, these very big words of veterans, you know, shoot, they get put into those shoes that you have to live up to. And then, um, what you said about hiring veterans, I think that once the community realizes like you have someone that the government has put millions of dollars of leadership training into, they might be a good leader in your company also. <laughs> you right. know, there's so like there's so many skills they have to offer. And I think also giving veterans the mentality of like taking that rightful place as a leader in your community because we need leaders in our communities. Um, and in a I think in a society where community is a harder and harder word, word to come by. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to remind everybody that we as a nation send our men and women to war, it takes a nation to bring them home. It does. And I don't mean just flying them home. I mean home in every sense of the word. And that is in our churches and synagogue sets, in our, um, in our jobs and um, in our base, baseball and softball leagues and, and bringing them home in every, every sense of the word. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's talk real quick about Charlie too. I think that yeah. you know, I know that he has been made a huge impact on your life, and I think um, it'd be a, a perfect, happy way to kind of wrap up is uh, the you know uh, just what an asset he's been to you and a part of your life. I, I really want to say this. I I actually pushed back on uh, applying for a service dog from the very beginning because I didn't feel like I was worthy. And I think so many veterans do that to themselves. They play down maybe who they are, what they did, or they say somebody else is more worthy. 
and I'm not going to do this for myself. And it took another veteran to convince me that, that I actually needed a service dog. Well, I knew I needed one, but that I was deserving of one and to apply for an, a service animal. And um, I actually, around, around that time, it was around 2016, I was plugging away with the Veterans Portrait Project. I was traveling state to state and um, I was starting to have some more sleeping issues and I thought I was doing well, but I wasn't. Um, dealing well with the stress. And then I had a grand mal seizure, which um, really, really woke me up. So I finally said, fine, I'll apply for a service animal. And I applied through America's Vet Dogs. At that time, uh, Today Show uh, on NBC launched the Puppy with a Purpose program and America's Vet Dogs uh, brought this cute little black lab out and his name was Charlie. So my husband and I watched Charlie grow as I continued to be on the wait list to be paired with a service animal. Now the average wait list for most service animal programs right now is 18 months to two years, which is a long time. It is a very long time. Yeah. And during that time, I actually vacillated back and forth about whether I should pull, pull my application or, you know, anyway, I stuck it out and I was like, no, I need this. I do need this. So finally it was October. Um, and I got a call and saying that I was getting paired with a service dog. He's super special. And with him came a lot of responsibility, but that he, we were like a match made in heaven. Turns out I was being paired with the today show, Charlie. And, um, wow. so we, I was there on, on the, uh, the set of the today show getting paired with this extraordinary dog. And he changed he literally changed my life. At, at that point in time, nobody knew that I was struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder or had a traumatic brain injury. I didn't tell anybody that. I didn't tell a lot of people about my traumas and even the veterans that I was photographing. Uh, I didn't feel like I wanted it to continue to be part of my narrative. And I didn't want it to be something that people coddled me over. I also didn't want to be treated special or different. I just wanted to get to some sort of normalcy. And I thought that having a service dog, um, or I didn't realize that having a service dog would force me to own that in a very public way, walking around with a service animals, like walking around with a billboard saying something's different in flashing lights. Right. And Charlie, yeah. So Charlie did more than just provide the, physical and emotional support I needed, but Charlie taught me to be accepting of who I had become. And that was okay. And that, um, that I could love myself for all the things that I couldn't do anymore and love for myself for all the things that I could still do and all the things that were still possible. Wow. That's pretty powerful statement right there. I think that's so important is that that acceptance, right, of where you are and where you've been and where you're going and them, you know, it's this merriment of all three is what makes us who we are. And um, it's I'm so happy for you that you were able to, you know, one, find that place because so many people struggle to get there. Um, and it's your work and, you know, the portrait project. And I, like I said, with After Action, I can't wait to see that. It's a real testament to the amount of effort that you have put into your life and your journey. And um, it's I'm just really thankful for you sharing it with me and, you know, allowing me to 
to kind of hear your story. I, I really value the time that people give when sharing their journeys. Um, and um, yeah, I'm really, I'm really thankful you've shared it with me. Hey, thanks for giving me the opportunity to, and, and I hope that anybody who's listening, who's at a crossroads or maybe struggling that, um, that it's, it's okay to, to be stuck, but it, it's also okay to find your way through and, and find your way forward. And there's no one right answer and to be inquisitive, to seek out answers. And I hope that you find the one that works for you. That's a perfect place to end, I think. Thank you so much, so much for being here today, Stacey. And thank you for sharing this story with us. Um, we're going to make sure to put links in. And um, we, I really would love to have you back after your show premieres. And maybe we can talk about that more as well. It's um, it, Your work is just really phenomenal. And I'm, I'm happy you've been able to you know, continue on with it and be able to just share it with a broader audience. It's really, um, I think, an important thing to do. And it's, I think it's going to help a lot of people. Thanks, Sarah.